It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. It takes a lot of hard work to make it look easy. This Mother's Day, Duluth Trading Co. can help you give her something that keeps up. Whether you prefer to shop online or in-store, Duluth has a motherload of gear, goods, and gifts to keep her comfortable and capable, no matter what needs doing. With Duluth's problem-solving details and legendary durability to boot, you'll finally be mom's favorite again. Check out DuluthTrading.com for all your Mother's Day gifting needs. Hello and welcome to the BBC Country Farm Magazine podcast, the podcast as we call it, where we take you on adventures into the wild for encounters with our amazing wildlife, we meet up with interesting rural folk and offer a welcome blast of fresh air. In this episode, we head out on an adventure in the hedgerow with naturalist George McGavin. George is a professor of entomology, that's insects, a prolific writer and has presented numerous TV shows, including the Expedition series on the BBC, Monkey Planet, and Prehistoric Autopsy, among many others. And he's also a regular one-show wildlife expert. In this episode, George links up via the power of technology for a virtual walk with our own Annabelle Ross to explore the amazing invertebrates to be found in a typical British hedgerow. It's an absolutely wonderful mini-adventure with a brilliant guide. Well, I'm, I'm on this little track. It's not far from our house, actually, and it goes between two farmer's fields which are normally one's grazing and the other's arable but this this path is quite wide and it's it's obviously an ancient route because I've just counted five six hardwood species in the stretch I've walked down which sort of if you use the old rule of thumb indicates that it's probably around 600 years old if not more so this has always been um, a track and uh, it's just glorious in the sun. I mean, it's uh, wonderful. I, I, I was quite stressed early today. <laughs> and I have to say, no matter how stressed I am, if I come out for a, a good half hour, hour walk, looking at nature, I invariably feel happier. And this is actually something that I think people have forgotten the power of. They, they just don't realize that if you go for a walk fine you get exercise but don't don't do a route march you know just slow down have a look at stuff i mean look at this here on this leaf this is an empid fly this is a tiny tiny little fly that's got an incredibly long beak and the sexual habits of this fly which are probably in every hedgerow in england would just blow your socks off so the male has to attract a girl, right? So in order to do that, he catches a tiny fly or a bug or something, which acts as a nuptial gift, which he then offers to the female. So he hangs, tries to attract a female who, who comes along, and if she thinks his gift of food is acceptable, he will then um, do what he wants to do, which is to mate. Well, <laughs> the, the larger 
the prey, the longer she'll feed, the longer he'll have to make. But some of these flies have gone even further and they've wrapped it in silk. So they've wrapped the prey in silk, which makes it look super attractive. And then they'll get extra females, they'll mate for longer. But bizarrely, and I don't think it's the one I'm looking at now, <laughs> but bizarrely some of them can't be bothered to find a prey item and they just make a ball of silk <laughs> that's empty <laughs> and they just <laughs> offer it to the female who is sometimes fooled and allows the male to mate only to discover that the gift wrap is empty there's nothing in it <laughs> does you, she eat him honestly, does she eat, eat him no afterwards? no she she flies off i imagine in a, in a very disgruntled fashion <laughs> <laughs> but it's fantastic. I mean, you, you just simply couldn't make this up. And this hedgerow, is, it's got stitchwort, it's got stinging nettle, bramble, there's bluebells, there's, uh, you know, sticky willy, there's lusula. And it's just, it's alive with stuff. I mean, every, almost every square centimetre you see, there is a little fly or a little beetle or a little bug or a spider. Is Lovely. this any different? I mean, would it look any different, do you think? I mean, it's a bit of a difficult question, but would it look any different without uh, coronavirus lockdown? Well, probably not here in, in the hedgerow off, mm. off the path, but the road verges are very different. Uh, and this has certainly been observed by lots of folks in the area and in other areas. So whoever has the job of trimming the verges, you know, are very good at it and they, they love neat, clean verges and so they're always cutting them and trimming them. Well, this year, of course, they haven't. <laughs> the, the, the road verges in our area this year have been absolutely glorious with green alkanet and comfrey and dandelions galore and of course this is exactly what the spring insects need particularly the the early bees who are right so it's been it's been wonderful uh, and i know we're we're not having ascot week you know which is actually a good thing because it means they won't flay all the edges again so I hope with any luck they might cut the verges once this year but it's given a real boost to the insect life. And remarkably, people are now beginning to comment on how many insect remains they're seeing on the front of their cars. Now, I remember as a boy growing up in Scotland, if we went on a long drive, that you know, you, you could scrape the stuff off your, your headlamps, you know. <laughs> but for the last 40, 50 years, uh, when I was in Oxfordshire, you could drive all summer and you wouldn't get a huge amount of insects on your car front. Well, it's happening again. And I just wonder if it's down to the fact that we're not being as insanely tidy uh, as we normally are. So being tidy, being less tidy brings more insects. Being tidy is the worst thing you can do. One third of the rarest insects in Europe live in decaying wood. So if you want to see a really rare thing, all you've got to do is do what I'm doing now, which is bending down and just taking off a bit of bark off this, off this old stump, which is completely decayed. And if I had a sieve and a brush, I would go through this bit by bit 
I'll bet you any money I would find something really special in here. But if you tidy it up, if you burn it, it's not going to be there. Don't you need a microscope? No. A hand lens is good. You know, I, I often say, you know, a times 10 hand lens, which you can buy in the shops for as, as little as five pounds. I mean, you, you can obviously have a posh one if you want. But a times 10 hand lens is one of the best things you can buy a child. I mean, without any doubt. So you can forget all about the electronic toys and their fancy gizmos. Times 10 hand lens, they will have it for the rest of their life and it will open up a whole new world to them that they never even knew was there. I've got my Times 10 hand lens out now and I'm just having a look at this massive ivy tr uh, uh, trunk which is growing up this, this really old oak tree. And if you get your iron, suddenly, oh my goodness, you can see little tiny things that you didn't even know were there. So there's a little bark louse. I'm just looking at a tiny thing. There's tiny ants going up and down. Wow. See, I mean, you, <laughs> this is the trouble. When I get my hand lens out, a, a half hour walk becomes a four hour walk. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, yes, it's not good. Oh, I wish I was there. But what a, what a wonderful way to, huh? I wish I was there. Well, Annabelle, you would love this. And it's not, I mean, it's not a fantastic hedgerow. It's not one of the best hedgerows I've seen. But to walk along a five, six hundred year old path, which has, you know, been like this pretty much for a long time, uh, is, is quite a thrill. And it really reminds me, every time I see a good, a good dense hedgerow with lots of plants and lots of insects, it reminds me of, of that bit in Origin of Species where... Charles de Darwin said, imagine a tangled bank. <laughs> and that is exactly what we've got. And that is exactly what you need for a diversity of species, a high diversity of species. To some of the bigger, um, bigger uh, mammals, let's say, um, that you might find in the hedgerow, would you find hedgehogs and sort of... Oh, yeah, we'd, we'd find hedgehogs, badgers, foxes. And they all, all love the, the hedgerow. Well, you see, now I have to, I have to confess uh, to being slightly, um, again, large hairy animals. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Everyone goes, how can you not love a fox or a hedgehog? Well, they're just not very interesting. You know, that, that's my argument is that, you know, large hairy animals really don't do very much. Oh, oh, have a look at this. On this leaf here, there are galls, you know, plant galls are just beginning. So the oak leaves are incredibly fresh and green. The herbivores are just starting on them. So there's little holes appearing. There are the beginnings of galls appearing. And it's not going to be long before they are hard at work eating the majority of these leaves. But you can see them doing things. You can see them behaving. You can watch their sexual behavior. You can watch their feeding behavior. They do much more for the environment than, than the big stuff. So uh -huh. I've, I've always said, if you want to understand ecology, if you want to understand how a hedgerow works or your back garden works or the savannas of Africa work, if you don't understand what the invertebrates are doing, you don't understand anything. Invertebrates is insects. Invertebrates. Okay. 
I'm going to include everything in this, or worms, <laughs> worms, flukes, insects, spiders, woodlice, the whole lot, the whole lot that make up the majority of the biomass on Earth. So, mm. and in terms of species, I mean, vertebrates, have a guess what percentage of all species named so far have a backbone. That's everything from aardvarks to zebras, blue whales, bats, cats, rats, mammals, amphibians, reptiles, us. Have a guess. Ah, ah okay, I'm gonna guess, I'm gonna guess a quarter. Under 3%. Oh, okay, I was way off. Yeah, under 3%. So under 3% are the, the, the big animals that most people go, oh, let's watch a program about bears or, you know, wolverines or something, you know, or the big cat diary, you know. Ah, <laughs> oh, yawn, yawn. Oh, they're cute, yes, they're cute, and a baby bear, how could you possibly not love a baby bear? But... <laughs> In terms of importance, ants uh, just outweigh all of that cuteness in a second, in a heartbeat. So are ants having, um, would you say ants are having a bit of a holiday because of COVID? I think wildlife in general, it's certainly it, the air quality has improved dramatically as we've seen in in lots of parts of the world. I, I suspect it'll be back pretty fast. I think once once lockdown stops, I think people will be so keen to get out in their cars and to drive somewhere just to get out of the house, you know, <laughs> that they're probably the, 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 the pollution will go right back up. So, but, do, but even with that happening, which you're right, I'm sure it's inevitable that we will all go back to the way we were because we're, we're humans and that's how we behave. But well, I hope that, we don't. Well, I that's hope we what learn I'm thinking. From this. Well, ooh, just ooh, I got it, Annabelle. I, yep. I have to stop you. I've just seen a cuckoo wasp. Oh my goodness! What a glorious creature! So, this cuckoo wasp is. I suppose you you might think of it as being a bit of a horrid. Sorry, cuckoo bee. What am I talking about? I've just seen a cuckoo bee, and this is one of the ones that, of course, sneak around and lay their eggs in the nest of other bees, so they, they, they don't do any of the hard work themselves. So uh, it's not, not just the birds who have c uh, cuckoos, there are quite a few species of bee who don't want to do any of the hard work themselves, they just, <laughs> they just sneak their eggs in when they can. Sorry, I interrupted. No, no, where's the cuckoo bee? Is it still there? It, it's just flown off now. It's just, it's just flown off. Oh, um, this is wonderful. Such a glorious day. The sun is streaming through the, the high trees here and just on this patch of hedgerow. And it, it's just wonderful. You've got nettles, you've got uh, stitchwort, you've got, oh, just lots of flowers. And of course, with lots of flowers and lots of sunlight, you get lots of insects. <laughs> um, so these insects are all obviously having, a, a, well, relatively having a better time than normal because all the humans are locked up. Um, but if, are we going to be locked up for long enough to give them a chance to, um, I don't know, long-term yeah. regeneration? If it was a six-week or an eight-week or a 12-week lockdown, would it be enough for some kind of long-term regeneration? That's an interesting question. Um, 
I suspect not. I, I, I mean, we, we're all familiar with how quickly the natural world takes over and comes back. So we, we've had accidents in parts of the world like Chernobyl and that's been abandoned and, and the whole, whole towns have been taken over again and the streets have been taken over, all the buildings have taken over. So yes, nature will come back and that is my great hope. It's what gives me a sense of, of comfort uh, in, in that w whatever we do, the natural world will reassert itself at some point. Six weeks, eight weeks, probably not long enough. Um, but I, what I hope it does do is I hope people get out and start looking at the natural world and thinking, actually, this, this, is, this is rather splendid. This, this, is, this is fascinating. I've got a little uh, chair here and <laughs> binoculars, which are not only for birds. You can buy special ones that focus really close and you can sit and you can watch things in the hedgerow beh behaving entirely normally. There's a fantastic hoverfly here just looking for all the world like a little wasp, but of course it's a hoverfly. Oh, and, and with a very you know, long sticking out. Um... Quite a, no, no, quite a few of the, the hoverflies are, are striped, uh, and the, there's even one that looks just like a honeybee um, called the, the uh, uh, drone fly. And it, it's, it flies like a honeybee, sounds like a honeybee, uh, but it's a, it's, it's a hoverfly. Uh, but no, I, I'm just hoping that people get out for their prescribed exercise, the verges of the roads haven't been cut. Things are really burgeoning now. Uh, and they might just take a look at it you know, really closely and say, actually, this, this is rather interesting. This is, this is rather attractive. This verge with its profusion of flowers is a lot more interesting than we normally have, which is a, a mown piece of grass. And I think it's what I would hope for is a change of attitude. Um, I don't think even a three-month complete shutdown will be enough for our animals and plants to really make a comeback. <laughs> but it's, it's change of attitude. It, that, that, that's what we need. One of the things about insect watching is, you know, they're quite small. You have to bend over a lot. And as you get older, your knees start creaking and your back starts to go. So a little camp chair and a pair of close focusing binoculars and you will be captivated. You will sit here. It's better than any t TV program. And you can just watch the stuff performing and behaving and mating and feeding and ah. Uh, what what are the trees around? Well, here? we've got we've got beech, we've got lime, we've got a bit of oak, we've got what else have we got? We've got uh, what's that over there? There's a rowan over there, so it's a it's a it's a fair old mix. Um, and what do you know? What birds elder, you've got? Course, as well, well now this is. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody assumes because I'm a well-known biologist that I know my birds. I'm going to confess to you, Annabelle, I don't. Um, if, I, if I can't see it, if I can hear it, I go, oh, that's nice. I really, I really admire the bird specialists who can hear a, a call of a bird and go, oh, yes, that's a so-and-so. I mean, that's just experience. That's just 
doing your trade, you know, years and years and years. It is amazing. I, I was yeah. once on an expedition to PNG, in the middle of nowhere, remote as you can possibly be, Papua New Guinea. where the fauna and flora, yes, where the, the fauna and flora have really not been examined at all. And I was with this fantastic frog specialist from Hawaii, and he got off the helicopter and he just heard this noise in a little bit of vegetation. And he said, George, that's a new species of Hylies, <laughs> which is a frog species. And I went, so how, how do you know? He said, well, I've heard all of them. And that's not the same. <laughs> wow. So, you know, he found a new species of frog, which in fact it was, uh, by its call from about, you know, 100 feet away. Fantastic. If we, uh, if we are out on our daily walk, what sort of bees should we, we be looking out for? Bees, oh my goodness. You know, there's, there's this rather um, odd view in the UK that there are relatively few bees in the, in, in the UK. There's a honeybee and bumblebee and, you know, there, there's, yes, there are. <laughs> there are t 25 bumblebees. There are 257 solitary bees, you know, species. So, you know, huge amount of bees. And I can see two species of bee from where I sit. Um, one is a, um, is a cuckoo bee, and there's a little flower bee as well. A so flower just, bee? Yeah, that's gorgeous little things. I mean, some, some very small bees. Actually, the, my favorite bee, my favorite bee in the UK is an absolutely tiny little bee. It's very slender. And it feeds on a particular flower's campanulas. And it nests in empty woodworm holes okay so this is this is fantastic so it's so that the hole is so small that if it's if it's if it's heading in to lay an egg it has to go in rear first if it's bringing in food it has to go in head first <laughs> and you know and so if, if you don't have old woodworm holes in old bits of wood you that particular bee hasn't anywhere to um, do, mm. there's a so lot it's of... just it's just this richness. It's the richness in a hedgerow, and this is one of the things that drives me to distraction. Is the hedge flail? Uh, I mean, just the most ubiquitous piece of agricultural machinery invented 40, 50 years ago, because somebody thought it was too much trouble to sharpen, you know, hedge cutters, which were done in the old-fashioned way, a bit like you know, ordinary head shears, which you would, you would have at home. And so somebody invented this rotating steel bar with chains on it that just macerate the hedge. And so anywhere you drive virtually, you see these hedges which have just been flailed to death and there's great branches that are all flailed and destroyed and the, nothing survives. It does you know, look really evil, actually, doesn't it? It, it does look terribly sad when you see that sort of yeah. the destruction that was sort of thoughtless. Uh, hellish machinery. So anything that is an egg or a pupa or a larva on the end of those twigs is macerated. It, with hedge shears, it was cut, it fell to the ground and survived. Uh, and if I could ban one thing before I die, it would be the hedge flail. I would just ban it outright. I think it's one of the most horrendous pieces of kit.
the hedge and the you're hedge gets at. infected. Yeah. Well, that, that the bit of hedge I'm in now has not been flailed uh, because road. it's a path. It isn't on the yeah. roadside, but just about 200 yards from where I am on the main road, there is a horrendous stretch of of flailed hedge, which looks dreadful. Uh, we've got to. We just have got to realise that without the natural world, we are nothing. We, we we can't survive, you know. And until we do that, until we allow the natural world to have its place, we are just a part of it. But we seem to think we are the most important part. And this is where we are coming slowly and surely unstuck. So, what what I wonder what it will take for us to. Um to take notice. Uh, it, we're not there yet, are we? Well, oh, what on earth is that? That is huge. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Annabelle, somebody <laughs> just flown past my field of view in my binoculars, and it was big, and it's just gone off. Hmm. Well, what would it take? Ah, oh, I don't know. I mean, I really don't know. I, you know, folks often go on about a golden age of man you know when when there were you know we looked after the planet and we hunted responsibly and we went this way one week and then we hunted the other way the next week nonsense nonsense we we did exactly the same as we're doing now the only difference between way back then and now is there are seven billion of us and our capacity to inflict damage is orders of magnitude higher and so in the old days of thousands of years ago hundreds of years ago what we did the natural world could repair in a, in a fairly short time but now uh, it's it's not working you know we we inflict so much harm and it makes me depressed yeah it really does yes yeah, so i was just thinking this is that. where i recharge this is where i recharge this is where no matter how depressed I have felt with the day or the week or whatever's happened, half an hour sitting in a woodland or in a nice vegetated place, just watching, just looking and learning is just, by the end of that, I, I feel great. I think that thing that flew past my binocular lens at high speed was actually a, a hornet queen, Ooh. which uh, would be good. Hornets are much maligned. In fact, wasps generally are much maligned. I, I don't know. I don't know how many millions British gardeners and householders spend on having wasps killed every year, but it's it's probably a fair amount. Uh, and yet, they are the stormtroops of your garden. They are the shock and awe in in horticulture. They will take every single soft pest insect from your crops and your garden and they will chew them up and feed them to their young job done for free so i i, re I really cannot understand how folks immediately ring uh, a pest controller every time they see a wasp net well i suppose that even with the good they do some people they if they're stung by a wasp it's quite serious can be quite serious <sighs> Okay, yes, there, there, are, there are some people for whom a sting can be uh, a bad thing. Um, allergic response, anaphylactic shock. And I, I've actually had anaphylactic shock nearly from a wasp yeah. uh, 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 colony in South America. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I was driving along and I, my, my track was blocked by a small tree trunk. So I, I stopped and picked this tree trunk and threw it into the bush. <laughs> Straight through a, a football sized, no, a beach ball sized <laughs> uh, wasp nest, which, which <laughs> cleaved it in half. And all the contents spilled out onto the ground. And the wasp, of course, like in, in the cartoons, looked around, saw me, and then that was it. <laughs> That was it. They came for you. My, my, my fate was sealed, yes. The, why, but, but wasps, they really do like to sting compared to bees, don't they? Haven't they got more of an urge to sting compared to a bee? Well, the, the, I think this is a bit of a myth, actually. Oh. Um, yes, in the, when a bee stings, it has to be very careful. And when a bee stings... Uh, it tends to lose its rear end. So it be, because a bee sting is barbed, it's very hard to get out again. So um, if you hit it away or just go foo, shoo, brush it off, the sting will remain in your, in your skin and the rest of the bee will end up over there. Whereas wasp stings are not barbed. They can sting again and again and again and again. Uh, so okay. per perhaps the... The overall, uh, you know, cost to a, an individual wasp isn't nearly as high as to a bee. But you know, my, I just think if you leave them alone, you know, and don't leave your beer in the main, your beer outside and on the table. <laughs> well, you know, I I I saw a thing once at a at a house I was at. They they unscrewed these, one of these tiny little jars of of jam, and they put that jar of jam a good way away from the house and of course all the wasps went there that seems perfectly reasonable oh that's you a know? good idea so you know if it's a huge amount of supply of food there why would they come to you yeah i found a bit of a, a, a fallen tree and a bit of bark here oh well that's just heaving under there get my glasses on under here is just Absolutely heaving with wood lice, beetle larvae, a spider there, spider egg sac there. And it's, it's yeah, this, this is incredibly rich habitat. It's got a, a large trunk. There we are. What are you up to? Well, I'm just trying to turn over this bit of tree. And we have to see what's under it. Oh, there's, oh, look at that. A coach horse beetle. There we are. Oh, what beetle? There's a, a, a large... It's a coach horse. It's called a... Um, coach horse, okay. What, what? Devil's... Coach horse beetle. And it's... Uh, shift this thing a bit. There, got it. Okay. I've got it in my hand. It's, it's not huge, but it... When it's annoyed, as it is now, it raises its abdomen up, it folds it up in the air, and it looks a bit like a little scorpion, but of course it isn't a scorpion. And it, it just sort of raises up its tail. And actually, when I was at Edinburgh, I had one, oh, and a centipede. Uh, I had a guy bring me one in a box saying, I found a scorpion in my garden, he said. I said, are you sure? He said, hi. It's a scorpion. <laughs> and I opened it, and cowering in the corner 
was one of these beetles. <laughs> what color are they? Are they, are they they're, they're black, absolutely black. And how big or small? Yeah. Or what, what? Uh, they're about half the, up to half the length of your small small finger. Or yeah. Oh, that's quite a decent size. That's an inch. Yeah, inches, I suppose. And they have a, and they have a tail that, that goes up. Well, the, the abdomen is, oh, the, is the I mean, they're, they're extremely slender. And they, they simply curl up their, their abdomen in the air. So on this little piece of log, we've got a centipede, a millipede, two different spider egg sacs, wood lice galore, I mean, literally thousands of woodlice. And I'm rather, um, I'm rather fond of woodlice. What is the, what is the, the work of woodlice? What, what's it, what does it do in our, in our world? Well, the work of a woodlice is to come into your, your house and die in, in the bathroom. In the corner it's, uh, of the windowsill. Too dry. Yeah. No, they're, 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 they're great scavengers. So they're, they, they. They're a part of the sort of scavenging guild of organisms. And I, I forget how many there are in the UK, but a fair few. And I've just realised I've dropped my glasses somewhere on the path. Oh, here they are. I found them. Oh, God. This is what happens when you get excited, you see. You start getting excited and things go wrong. Do the do the do wood lice curl up in a ball when they're scared? Some do, yes. Uh, some do. Uh, I think actually in the, in the UK it's only one. In fact, ah, uh, oh, ooh, look at this. Oh, and snails here as well. Under the bark, we've got a little tiny snail that lives, and it's a very elongated snail with a shell. Uh, in this piece of log, which is, I don't know, probably about eight feet long, if I was to take this apart, you would probably find several tens of thousands of individual animals and easily a hundred species, if not more. And that's just the ones you can see. Of course, the, 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 there's a lot more happening, which you can't see, of course. Ooh, centipede, that's quite a big one. You know, he's a carnivore, of course. Do centipedes and millipedes fight each other? Uh, no, not in my experience, no. They, they, they tend to avoid each other mm. or, or just, you know, tolerate each other, I suppose. So that is a little tiny centipede that's just going along hunting for something to eat. And this tree trunk has obviously been infected by a beetle that's made a, a, a tunnel under the bark as well. So that might have been something to do with why it died. But, uh, oh my goodness. This is why you don't want people clearing up forest floors. You want all the deadwood to stay as it is. So that you, you really don't want places to be too tidy. And I think people can experiment on this for themselves. There's a great move afoot uh, currently to, to not mow your grass in May. It's called No Mow May. <laughs> oh. And, okay, you don't have to not mow your whole lawn, but 
I reckon if you left a couple of wide strips or even one big bit of a lawn that, you know, just unmown, I think you'd be surprised at just what grows in there, you know, and how it, um, attractive it, it can be. So, you know, it, it, I'm, I'm always amazed at how folks are so resistant to um, having an easy life, you know, <laughs> you know just don't cut it just leave it i love the idea of no mow may but some people mow in april <laughs> some people just mow all the time they love mowing you know i i know, I know that there will always be some people for whom a lawn is a striped uh, sward of exactly even height which has been fertilized and weed killered and looks like a bowling green fine if it's a bowling green then that's probably what you have to do but if it's a back garden in suburbia, you don't have to do that. You can have at least one part of it where you just let nature go nuts, basically. It's a hell of a lot easier. Well, I think some people really love mowing. They must do. They must love mowing. Of course, it was very, it was very sort of in the, it was in the 40s and 50s, of course, when, you know, this was the thing you, you the, the, an Englishman's home was his castle and he had this nice piece of, of ground where, where the natural world was tamed. It, it was really to, to demarcate the wilderness, the outside from your place. And to do that, you planted herbaceous borders and you had things regimented and you trimmed, you cut the lawn and you made it green and striped so that this was, this was your man-made environment. This was your, you know, your territory. And it's, it's a rather barren territory because there are very few animals on a, on a mown lawn. And so you just want to have it, I mean, if I could just encourage some people to just have a happy medium, it would be nice. A strip. Yeah. A strip even, a metre squared, a metre squared, there. That's all I'm asking, one metre squared of lawn, just leave it. And, you know, as an experiment, you know. And what's the length, what, 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 what might they notice? Wildflowers, but of course they, they, might, they might include things that people are, are they, you know, regard as weeds, you know, I mean, this is, this is, I mean, even the, the RHS, the Royal Horticulture Society, have a list of plants that are lawn weeds and, you know, the dandelions and all sorts of stuff. Dandelions are very important plants, but, you know, it, it would take a, a strong soul who has for 20, 30 years mown and herbicided his lawn or her lawn to, to tolerate a dandelion or two or three. But they should, they really should, you know. Dandelions aren't around for trouble. that long, are they? They're only around for a few weeks. They're only around for about six weeks. And in fact, in, in our area, the, the, the edges of the roads have been absolutely fantastic. We've had dandelions just everywhere. Just, I've never seen a year where there has been so much flowering plants in, in, in the roadside. Uh, and it's absolutely glorious. And there are some parts of the country where now they are making this happen they're actually planting orchids and they're sowing wildflower mix and it looks magnificent and you don't have to mow it you don't have to cut it you don't have to do anything with it so there is you know. a positive things are things are happening things are happening yes i mean attitudes 
are changing um, uh, not fast enough for my uh, liking, but you know, change will will happen. And I think people just have to just stop for, on a walk, sit down on a log or something, and just take it in. Just don't talk, don't move around, don't have your phone in your hand. You know, just be quiet and keep still and just look around you. I took a, a group of school kids from our, our school up into the woodland for a, uh, you know, forest experience and I, I told them all to sit on the ground, you know, find a space on your own and just sit down and shut your eyes for 60 seconds, a minute, shut, shut your eyes and just listen to the, the sounds of the forest and just, you know, and it was so obvious that all the girls it was easy for them. They could do it without even trying. The boys, after 10, 20 seconds, were going nuts. They were just, you know, twitching and fidgeting, and they were just, you know... <laughs> it was so How obvious. old were they? How old were they? Oh, about eight or nine. Yeah. But did they go exploring, but the boys? Were they enjoying it? They did, absolutely. And they found, in fact, one, one boy on this trip uh, actually found a slime mould, which is a pretty unusual organism which I, I hadn't ever seen. Uh, in fact, I, I actually had to track down the British expert on slime moulds and find out what it was. Oh, so, of course, you know, he won a prize. He was very, very pleased. I hope by that single act, that one single thing that he won at school, I, I hope he will become the next British slime mould expert. <laughs> when I go on my walk tomorrow, what do I need to take with me and how do I get to know this world of insects? Without well, a hand lens. Long, yeah, that's not be too long. Just walk slower. Walk, walk slower. Just folks walk pretty fast. If you're going for exercise, have a run. Oh, it's Longhorn Bee. Oh, that is magnificent little Longhorn Bee. Andrina has just flown past. Uh, just walk slower, observe, look, focus your eyes on the smaller things, you know, because they're, they're all there. Uh, hand lens is good, but the trouble with the hand lens is you have to get quite close and generally they fly off. So uh, what I would recommend, if, if you can find a pair, you can buy binoculars which focus to about three feet uh, and they're absolutely brilliant. So from I'm about five feet away from this bug, which is a very tiny bug, but it's close enough and it's enough of a magnification that I can tell you exactly um, you know what species it is. Oh, that was fantastic. Wise words, wonderful enthusiasm, and some startling revelations about the tiny creatures under our noses. I hope we all feel renewed childish wonder at the extraordinary lives of these tiny critters. Thank you to George and Annabel for surmounting some tricky technical challenges in creating that great day out. And please let us know what you think about our podcast by emailing me, Fergus Collins, the editor of the magazine and host of the podcast. My email address is editor at countryfile.com. So you've been listening to the BBC Countryfile magazine podcast, produced in Bristol by Jack Bateman. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.